Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we're talking about the future of workspace. We're talking about London ecosystems and what the future of the office is already looking like. I'm joined by David Hutton, who's director at CORE, which are behind some of the biggest and most significant schemes currently coming forward, like London Studios and 120 Fleet Street that we'll talk about very shortly. We're joined by Gabriella Hersham, who's co-founder at Huckletree, which is the UK's leading independent flexible workspace provider. And we're joined by Alastair Subaru, who's executive chairman at Fairbrother. Alastair, we'll start with you. Legendary figure that you are in real estate. You've been in the marketplace for 35 years. And I must say, the oil of Ule has been doing its job because you're looking absolutely fantastic. Tell us about how you see the market right now and how the recent few months and the last couple of years differ from some of the cycles that you've worked through over the last few decades. We are looking particularly good too, so um, thanks very much for the compliments. Now, this market is actually creating some dynamic changes, which have been in the offering for a number of years. The pandemic has actually allowed people to think more carefully about how they use property. Mm. Uh, we always say business plan first, property second. So it's allowed people to really think about why they're taking property, what is its use, what is it delivering for its clients, its customers, its people? And I'm sure during the course of this session, we'll hear lots of things about the dynamic changes that the workplace has provided over the last five years, accelerated by people's thought process with COVID. When we're all faced with actually working from home and being forced by the government to work from home, that accelerator has been dynamic. It's been exciting. Yeah, but let's be blunt. And you, know, you at Fairbrother, have been one of the leading office agents in this marketplace for decades. And we're seeing a, an absolute flood of money coming in, aren't we? And I think some will look at this and think, crikey, you know, all of these massive deals, all of this committed capital to new office schemes, whilst we're still reading articles and newspapers about twats, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday workers presumably using 40% less space because they're only there for three days a week. How do the two align? Well, I think that you've got to be very careful to make those judgments really early in this process. We're coming up to March, end of March, where it's two years since the pandemic started and everything started to close down. The busiest consultants out there at the moment are the workplace consultants, not the furniture salesmen drawing lines around furniture or looking at the occupational way they used to in terms of occupiers' requirements, but really thinking now as to what does it mean to be in an office building? What do I need to provide? And mm. the early days of the three-day week, which then gave rise to a 40% theoretical reduction, actually, we spent 10 years shoehorning people into as little space as possible. Now, the space requirements are bigger, People want more space standards, so they need more space on their floor. Mm. And they want bigger breakout area. They want comfy places to go away from the so desk. So you're saying you're describing so essentially some, the elastic band coming back. Yeah, there's some really innovative spaces being created. It doesn't necessarily mean that 40% actually is the loss of floor space requirement. Mm. I suspect the true figure, when this settles down, and don't forget, it hasn't settled down 
Now, we haven't got everybody back into work across the whole of London. I suspect that net loss of floor area required will be closer to 15 to 20%. Mm. So, I mean, Huckle Tree, Gabby, have been in the marketplace for nearly eight years. Your whole DNA is about creating inspiring spaces and building ecosystems that bring different people together. What are you now having to provide and how are you working with your customers to shepherd them through and, and to support them? First of all, I'm not going to be offended that you're not talking to me about my oil of Yule. I think I'll take it as a time <laughs> of sign with the progressive times that we're in and I'll move on to answering the question. Um, but for us, so how are we supporting? I think it's, you know, as much as you were saying, it's very much about people wanting the additional space. They want to come back in. People are not coming back in every day. I think what we are seeing is a really good split of employers requiring that their teams come in evenly spread over the week so that they can be more efficient with their footprint and not having everybody kind of cram back into the office on Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays. So that although our spaces are slightly quieter on Mondays and Fridays, actually by and large, not significantly. But when they are in, what they want is they want the phone booths, they want the the creative spaces for them to kind of brainstorm and collaborate with their teams in, they want the open plan kind of auditoriums, they want to bring everybody back in one day a month. And I think, you know, we're trying to accommodate for that by really building spaces which are exciting and entice people back in because when you come in, it's not just desks and offices and meeting rooms, but you've got your meditation yurts where you put your tech down and you can kind of brainstorm and you've got the collaborative space. So I think all of that in a kind of, dare I say it, post-pandemic world mm. is even more important than before. And it's quite exciting because you can really change the landscape of the workspace. Yeah. But there'll be some people in property and, and probably some people listening to this that will snigger at the suggestion you'd put some sort of meditation year in a commercial office building in London. I think if they're sniggering at this point, they're out of date, honestly. I yeah. think that, you know, we're working with a lot of the large developers and we're seeing what they're putting into their spaces and they're developing these like, you know, million plus square feet developments and they're really thinking creatively about what's going in. So I think if people are sniggering about meditation spaces and the need for wellness in the workplace, I, I know it's it's true. It's a fact. That is what people want today. And, so, and actually, the, I go so far as to say those that are putting those spaces into the workplace are now doing better than those that don't. So the ingredients of the cake as to when you go out and search for accommodation, yes, it's location, location, but it's not just about location. Developers now have to think about the surroundings. Mm. They have to think about what the leisure opportunities are. They have to think about access to transport facilities. They have to think about local restaurants and other aspects outside the building but inside the building, like Victoria House. Sometimes inside the building as well. Absolutely. David, let's bring you in, because you have a couple of <laughs> very significant, I mean, a couple of the, the most significant office-led schemes in, in London currently under development, don't you? Why don't we talk about one of those? Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm dealing specifically with 120 Fleet Street, which got planning consent towards the end of last year and is now in demolition phase. Um, that's a spec building of just over 600,000 square feet, rising to about 18 stories. So it's got fantastic views. One of the main attributes of that scheme is the way that it tears back. So nearly every floor above level five has large terraces. Again, part of the drive towards wellness in offices and being able to provide different spaces for people to create or have leisure facilities mm. is really important. And we see that as a big sell for that kind of space. 
And you're recycling quite a lot of the building materials as well, aren't you? Absolutely. So, I mean, again, this is a a new build scheme, but um, despite that, we're still keeping over 51% of the concrete in the building by retaining elements of it and all of the basement and foundations, etc. So sustainability is a huge factor of what we do, and it's part of our social value, if you like, yeah. uh, to minimise the impact of the environment of our scheme. And who are the backers on that, and what are they asking you to do that you wouldn't have had to do, do you think, maybe 10 years ago? Well, I think generally across our schemes, we've got a number of institutional backers. We've got some foreign owners as well who own some of the sites, but... Specifically from the the institutions, we're seeing a massive push towards ESG. They're asking us how we can find out metrics for them to publish, whether it's looking at CREM and how assets could be stranded in the future. But it goes back to basics, really. This is more about just the design of spaces initially. We're now employing teams to monitor throughout the whole construction process on how best we can either recycle materials or if there's alternative materials at granular level to try and make sure that every piece of material that goes on the building has a purpose or could be as carbon and green as possible. Mm. I mean, I suppose it's also a degree of how your contracts work, enabling you to make sure people don't just replace stuff. Absolutely. So you have to have full control of that. So the a change control process on any large change that goes through mm. the, the scheme would have to go via us first. And they'd have to prove that it was not worse in environmental terms. And we're pushing to to show benefits. Mm. But also it. health terms. I mean, if people forget about glues, solvents, the noxious fumes that come off of different materials. Absolutely. You know, that so new car smell everybody loves is probably <laughs> poisoning you a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, non-VOC paints and things like mm. that are sort of standard these days, I guess. And again, we don't really fit buildings out as such. We're more creating spaces. But where we do use yeah. desks and things, it has to be sustainably sourced as you'd imagine uh, gabby on and just going back to what you were saying a bit earlier and following on from what alistair was also saying in terms of some of these other additional services to what degree is that becoming much more operationally intensive because i suppose if we dial back and alistair can answer in a second what the office market may have looked like when he began his career in the 80s there wasn't a need for the landlord, the investor, or the developer to be doing all of the things that David's just described or any of the things that you guys do. But now there is, right? So if we're dealing with essentially pastoral care for customers, which is what you're describing, how is that operated and how can developers be taking on that sort of burden? It's a really good question. I mean, I think that definitely it's becoming much more, I would say, akin to the hospitality industry. So much more in line with hotels where now you walk into a building and it's not good enough anymore to have a mediocre kind of reception and greeting space you really need or a security to guard that's asleep <laughs> you can't even for us when we're looking at taking on buildings that we might be leasing or you know doing management agreements with if we walk in and we see that for us it's a no-go unless we then take it over and put our staff there because nobody wants to walk into those buildings anymore you want to walk into a building that feels like the ace hotel so i think you know with that yes it's operationally more intensive but it's probably just more in terms of the actual training that the staff undergo and some of the things that we're speaking about now when we come in and we kind of take floor space is not just thinking about the workspace but it's also thinking about managing that kind of front of house activation managing the fmb managing events and programming for the whole building and all the tenants so we can really bring them together and create this exciting community and ecosystem within the building so it's much broader, I think, for us than it was a few years ago, which is really exciting. 
Yeah. And Alistair, from your perspective, you know, looking inside buildings, looking outside buildings, this focus on really getting under the skin of the customer is not something that people used to do, is it? It definitely isn't. And um, when I started working, your home life and your work life were completely separated. There was no intertwining of the two. Now it's like a big bowl of spaghetti. Am I at home working or am I at work having fun? And, you know, we have Victoria House not far from here. You walk into it, it's like the Four Seasons. It has a really good quality entrance. It's got a coffee shop by day and reception and it's got a cocktail bar by night. There's 8,000 square feet of non-rentable off-floor space, non-rent-chargeable floor space, wellness areas, end-of-journey facilities, bike racks, towel service, you name it, it's in there. And you called it a burden, which is an interesting word, because it's not a burden on the landlord. Most of these things fold down through the service charge of the building. Mm. And our experience is that tenants that are looking to put their staff into this type of accommodation will happily pay for it. Do you see, I mean, Gabby suggested that this is there are echoes of the student accommodation sphere, which has and was the first really institutional asset class of in property to A, to say the word customer without laughing, and also to have businesses that are integrated in the sense they're integrating, uniting the investment, development, operational functions, which are now being seen across offices. Is that something you recognise, this operationalization? Are you seeing that people are wanting to pipe in the operational side? Are people looking for these sorts of things or do you just see this as needless add-ons? No, not at all. I think people are actively looking. You know, we have various acquisition clients that we've been looking after specifically in the last two years. The focus is on this war on talent. Mm. And that talent wants to work in a really nice bit of space that has plenty of amenities, that it is a joy to come to work. There is active data of people leaving jobs because the accommodation they have to work in is not very nice. And so there are huge benefits, measurable benefits. There's staff retention. You know, how difficult is it when you have somebody resign and you've got to rehire somebody? You've got client. You've got client retention and client recruitment in terms of new business. But you've also got the statement, what I call the AGM statement, where what am I doing for the well-being of my staff, the well-being of the people I come into contact with, and what's now being described as planet health. You know, what is my landlord doing as a contribution to the local environment and also to the wider environment? Mm. And these are all really important things. I don't see this as fashion. I don't see this as great today, gone tomorrow. This is a progressive step that COVID has accelerated that's been going now for probably the last five to 10 years. And it's long been going that these kind of offices increase productivity and bottom line, right? Like you look at Facebook and you look at Google and all the things that they've been offering for so long. There's a reason for it. They want to encourage their team members to come into work. They know that you can't build a great business in silo. And so if you're there and you're collaborating together, actually the business impact is so strong that, you know, as you say, 100%, why would people not be happy to pay that little bit extra for the service charge? And when you're working with developers on the sorts of projects that Huckletree does, what are some of those conversations that take place early on? Because I guess some developers will look and go, well, you know, do we need to invest so much in the space? Do we need to do all of these things? What are, the, what are those 
conversations that occur how is it that you're able to get people to move and be more progressive in looking at these things well i think it really depends on who the developer or the investor is and somebody said to me this morning you know you're much more likely to have the high net worths kind of be on the same page as this actually i don't think that's true i think that what we're seeing is the developers with the really really large assets coming online really recognize that in order to fill the remainder of the space they have to have this really engaging and exciting offering. Mm. So they're the ones that are coming saying, right, we need 20% to be flex. We need to have all these additional amenities. We need to make it a world-class office offering. And only then will we fill the remainder of the space. I think what you said before with that is important. On the large schemes in particular, there's always a thought about having a percentage of flex space and who might operate that. Mm. And the tenants that we've been speaking to without all of them are uncertain, I suppose, as to their exact space requirements over the next five, 10 years. And to what Alice was saying in terms of, well, they need more space to grow and have more space around people so they're not packed in like sardines. Or will they be growing organically over that period as well in still what's quite uncertain times across the globe? At the so moment. how do you appraise that? So when you're doing these huge schemes like London Studios, like 120 Fleet Street, how are you thinking about the leased offer versus the flex offer? Well, I think, I suppose the the, the, the natural thing is to, uh, these schemes are developed over a long period of time. So you market it first as a a spec office to uh, ideally with a large space take tenant and really listen to them, listen to what they want out of the building. The base building will deliver a certain amount of facilities and whether it's sort of leisure facilities or retail facilities, Mm. uh, outside space, things like that. But really, if you can and engage with tenants early on in the process, it gives that unique opportunity mm. to tailor what you're doing to make it suit and to... Well, it sounds like you've got lots of space on the roof terrace for trampolines <laughs> Absolutely. and, and yeah, yoga. walking and yeah. tennis. I remember the first one we did of any size was at Watermark Place, and that was a half-acre roof terrace, which Namora took as their European HQ. And they put beekeeping up there. They grew vegetables for their market garden to sell organic vegetables for the staff. It's fantastic, as well as having yoga classes and exercise classes. And it really showed up until that point, and that was around sort of 2009, terraces were often, sometimes quite often put on buildings, but not really utilised in any material way, possibly because of the weather, (laughs) but equally because they weren't really fitted out. And the imagination of how to use them wasn't really embedded in, uh, I think, the yeah, I guess the roof space was just where you shoved all the plant machinery, wasn't it? It wasn't something where you'd actually think about any real... Mm. Uh, as soon as we started greening them, it made a big difference. Yeah. So that's a good point to move into the conversation on social value, because again, these things then, it merges a little bit, doesn't it, Gabby, in terms of thinking about something that's commercially useful for getting a higher rent and something that's socially useful for genuinely engaging people, making them happier, making them more productive, making them more relaxed dealing with anxiety and stress and all of these things, as Alice mentioned, have been exacerbated by the pandemic and everything else that's occurred. So operationally, how is Huckletree looking at those sorts of things? And what are some of the, give us some advice for other people listening. So in terms of social value, I think, first of all, your point around the balance between, you know, the value of putting these things in place and then the actual rent or in our case membership fees that we can achieve is an interesting point. But actually more and more we're seeing that we are being asked how we are contributing to the communities around us and about the sustainability credentials of our buildings and whatnot. So actually more and more by by potential members, but individuals or just the companies? 
Both. 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 But do, do um, the individual workers care? Because this is the other question I think people have is that I think everyone accepts that giants like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, these companies that have made commitments to be carbon negative by 2030, that they corporately, they absolutely give a stuff and that they, mm. they really care. But you know, does your average person give a shit if your building's Briam, this, that, or the other? I'd argue probably not. I don't know There's so much. Quite significant climate change protests over the last few years. With no, I, I, people I, I, on the street I, I, who are. But that isn't my point. But my point is that people want to know that things are complying with their values. But my point is such that your average person on any of those processes isn't going to know what Briam this or that means. No, and if I, they're so focused well, on on it, environment, it, are they going to want to be in a new building? I think it depends upon what that person does or mm. what they're part of in terms of the food chain. Because there was a really interesting Gresham College presentation with the former Lord Mayor, Sir William Russell, and uh, Mark Carney. And ultimately, the upshot of it was, go green or go home. We're not listening to this. And what they've done is they've galvanized the top corporates in the world. And through the food chain that comes down from those corporates, it doesn't matter what your service level is within the cascading impact of whether you do work for Google or you do work for Microsoft or Ford or BMW or whoever, Mm. you need to be socially aware and conform to this green agenda. And so it will cascade down. It does take a bit of time to do that. But on that point, Alistair, what did you make of the row with Marks and Spencers before Christmas? Because they were heavily criticised for going in for planning Westminster for a new building demolished the old one on Oxford Street, and there was a massive public outcry because everyone suddenly realised, hang on a second, you bang on about sustainability, but you're trashing a perfectly good building that you could be refurbishing. Well, there's always an argument in terms of, do I get what I need occupationally out of an existing building, or am Mm. I trying to maximise its value for shareholders? But there is a clear policy towards reusing buildings where possible and where it actually works on a refurbishment, this new phrase, grey to green, you know, mm. that there's lots of buildings up for sale at the moment that won't satisfy under their current layout and occupational setup. So they will be a grey to green situation. They're being sold, they will yeah. be refurbished, and they won't be demolished as part of that um, normal mm. process of evaluation. But there will be situations, you know, like a 120 Fleet Street that is a new development. When yeah, but sustainability it, it, just isn't about the initial carbon hit by creating something new. It's about how that can work in operational carbon through the whole period. You look at it, the life cycle of the whole scheme. Yeah, but the operational carbon is only about a fifth max of the total embodied carbon of that sort of project, really. I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, you know, you, you'll find that over when we're looking at graphs, there's obviously a bigger initial hit Although a lot of the materials, as I said, on that particular project will be recycled. Yeah, but I think but that's a good example of where you can act really progressively. But the reality is that the bulk of the carbon footprint for any piece of real estate is going to be in the materials used to build the thing and the mining of those materials, be the steel, the concrete and all the heat. And there's an opportunity there, isn't there, to make sure those materials are as sustainable as possible. Mm. And we need to be building buildings creatively that are fit for purpose and are delivering what people want there's no point refurbishing buildings that don't have a market and we're the best one in the world some buildings are much more difficult to refurbish others sometimes refurbishments work perfectly well you know where you have decent story heights in buildings typically a lot of the 80s buildings with sort of larger floor plates they can be refurbished beautifully 
other buildings are much more of a challenge because they don't have the loading capacity. And you know, you want to maximise the ability to develop on brownfield land. <laughs> That's another sustainable point where there is a market demand for office space or any other sort of use, really, mm. where we can intensify that use on brownfield land. That's got to be the best. So you think there's a danger then if people are kind of hauled over to coals simply because they're not refurbishing a building? So it's a wider argument in terms of sustainability. It's not just about carbon. It's about being able to intensify uses. There is an economic argument. But equally, in some instances... There's a sustainable argument because you're able to produce a building that will operate at a much lower level of operational carbon. I think mm. for Fleet Street, it was about a quarter of the existing building's carbon footprint going forward, albeit you're you know, taking a little bump up front to create the new scheme. Yeah. But Gabby, going back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about operationalizing some of this stuff, thinking about the day-to-day activities and undertakings that you as the operator will take responsibility for. What are they and what are the people saying and Mm. what are your interactions with some of those customers? Because again, that's the piece that a lot of investors won't ever see. They'll never really understand what actual customers think. Yeah, and I think when the customers or the members look to us as like, you know, a brand or the operating business that they are putting their businesses in or you know in the case of the employees that they are sitting and working from every day they are very interested in the sustainability and obviously we're not the developers so it you know we're not going to be the ones who are you know at the end of the day on the hook for the briam credentials of the building or whatnot but they do want to know what we're doing on a day-to-day basis with regards to single-use plastics across our spaces do we serve meat or vegetarian yeah. products are there recycling facilities available everywhere are, they're not care, they don't care about the badges it's what it actually means to how them in, we're operating Exactly. exactly waste yeah. management etc so there's that but there's also so much more i think they're also looking to us about how we are impacting the local communities how we are supporting not only the communities within our buildings but how we are engaging with the communities outside of the buildings and the areas that we operate in they are asking us about our dei credentials and what huckletree is doing to support so explain what dei credentials mean for people so diversity equity and inclusion so in the i mean widespread across the world obviously like not so much diversity a lot more awareness towards it now but still kind of a long way to go and I, I actually heard a stat the other day that we won't achieve gender parity in my lifetime so if and that's the kind of you know the fundamental the basis if we're not even achieving gender parity you can imagine all these other pockets of underrepresented groups where there is so much work to be done and our members do look to us in that regard they look to us to say okay Huckletree what are you doing with your position within the innovation ecosystem to increase diversity and to increase representation and inclusion so there's a lot that we are accountable for also a lot of our members now that our member businesses are either B Corp or going through B Corp accreditation as part of that process they need to talk about the workspaces that they're in and and you know what credentials they live up to so even though we're not the developers it's amazing kind of how many questions we're being asked on a daily basis which is a very positive thing because it forces us to up our game mm. and Alistair you've been very heavily involved with Fairbrother in establishing and supporting a number of business improvement districts over the years and this focus on the wider community is something I know you're very passionate about when it comes to thinking about embodying some of these values and driving social value what does some of that look like now Well, again, the bid network has been evolving and maturing over a 22-year period. They were actually introduced into uh, the UK 2003-2004, but a little bit of time before that. And that maturity is really all about having real access to stewardship, 
So the business improvement districts that have been involved in North Bank, Hatton Garden, Hoban, which is the Central District Alliance, and now more recently, the Fleet Street Quarter Business Improvement District, is effectively taking a degree of stewardship and looking at things like destination marketing, about fully inclusive behaviour with all of the different types and styles and sizes of business, events, we bring people together, air quality, energy considerations, transport considerations, safe and secure matters, and bringing all of those ingredients into what we hope will create over time a really vibrant and a regenerated, exciting Fleet Street area. And so all of the things that we talk about in the ESG agenda are, I think, one of the frustrations that I keep hearing is, how do I get involved? How do I make a difference? So the BID platform, the Business Improvement District platform, allows stakeholders to actually get involved in driving an agenda that was previously out of their reach Mm. or looked after by the local authorities. And the BID has that stewardship that engages with businesses locally and allows them that platform to speak and to drive the agenda forward. And David, I'm interested in how this manifests on the ground, because you're clearly involved with the biggest scheme that Fleet Street's seen in generations, right? Yeah, sure. So I'm also involved in the Fleet Street bid with Alistair, and successfully that's got uh, its vote to move forward. Um, so is it going to be pedestrianised with a nice food market on it? Like the, no, the, the, the I expect not. Absolutely not. I expect not. But there is a lot of scope, obviously, for improvement. I think traffic calming on Fleet Street, narrowing that main carriageway, improving the pedestrian footways, healthier streets uh, with more greening. And I think what Alice was saying, really, is it, not just about that physical environment. It's about engaging with the businesses. It's about encouraging that inward investment to create a more vibrant community. Mm-hmm. Let's just get some final thoughts to close then. So how do you expect, Gabby, to see the office market responding further? What are going to be some of the other things that are going to have to be measured and delivered to drive the sorts of social value that people are expecting over the coming years? What are some of the things that we use an operator when you're partnering with developers, some of the things that you want to be able to bring to the table? I think I'd probably bucket this under four areas, and this is how we look at it, but I think a lot of operators will look at it differently. So for us, it's about sustainability. When we're going into a building, how are we actually fitting out our spaces? So we, our first space was uh, awarded silver scar rating going forward. We want that to be at gold. And then obviously managing the sustainability of the space on a kind of day-to-day operational basis, I think super important. And that's relatively easy to quantify, especially compared to the other three. So the other three are communities. So as I mentioned, how are we supporting our communities? How are we creating ecosystems? What impact is that having on them? And then how are we going out into the wider community to support them, bringing them in, giving them access to space, to workshops for upskilling, etc. Innovation. So when you work at Huckletree, how are we empowering our members to innovate? How are we helping them? And what impact does that then have on their own businesses? And then the last one, back to DEI, how are we supporting the creation of a more equal and diverse ecosystem within our buildings? I don't yet know how we quantify these things. I think that's a really good question. And we're definitely keen to get to the stage where we can quantify and then benchmark and see how it evolves over time. 
But I think because we look at it slightly differently from the other players, it's not such an obvious one as to how mm, we quantify. Mm. So final word on Alistair, other than David's awesome scheme, Fleet Street, who are some of the other developers that people should be looking at for being progressive, for being forward thinking, for doing some of the things that we've been discussing this morning? I think it's very high up on the priority list, this matter amongst all of the public quoted companies, the REITs, the institutions, they've all been through their portfolios, they've weeded out properties that actually are going to be difficult. They've all been up for sale. Mm. Couldn't um, have been that high up on their list, could it, if they had so many properties? Well, it's an evolving thing, this. It's not going to happen overnight. The fact that it's important is fundamental because actually attitudes are driving these changes. So we are going to find better buildings, better public realm, better environment, I think you're right about the reporting of this. In the real estate built environment world, we've got 10 kite marks that a developer could look at, you know, from wired score to BRIAM to yes. EPC certificates and what have you. And regular listeners to be, this will know what I think of most of these There things. needs you, to be a consolidation of something yeah. that brings these together. Because the main people forward. that make money from those things are the people that make certificates, aren't they? But the agenda is evolving. It is on the agenda. Everybody is alive to it both from the purchaser of a development site to the investor that buys the end thing, as well as the occupier. It isn't going to go away. It's going to get more and more important, and it's really exciting that everybody is engaging in it. Okay, fantastic stuff. Well, look, we'll leave it there. Alastair Savaro, thank you very much, from Fairbrother. Gabriella Hersham from Huckletree. And David Hutton, who's director at CORE, and absolutely looking forward to seeing the regeneration of Fleet Street with 120 Fleet. It's going to extortionately interesting exciting development for midtown for london so look forward to seeing that coming forward over the coming year or so um thanks very much for listening you can subscribe to propcast on apple spotify soundcloud search propcast leave a review if you loved or hated this share it with some of your colleagues and friends and teams and please do suggest any guests that you'd like us to interview thanks a lot for listening i'm andrew teacher take care bye-bye